Joe, which hopefully I said close to correctly, to introduce the panel, and um, we will start the CLE. Thank you all again for joining us. Thank you, Lori, and thank you for allowing us to present to the Maricopa County Bar. Uh, this is an incredible time to be presenting, making this presentation. It's an incredible time for everything. It, it's been quite a challenge, uh, and we're moving in directions we never expected, and, and we're moving quickly in, in trying to resolve matters as best we can. I'm Charles Adernetto. I'm the Judicial Education Officer for the Maricopa County Justice Courts. Uh, and as such, I'm very pleased to be working with Judge Anna Huberman uh, from the Country Meadows Justice Court. Judge Huberman, uh, and everyone's bios are contained in the materials, has just an outstanding biography. She's just been featured in Attorney at Law magazine here in Phoenix. Uh, she is the Justice of the Peace of the Year, and Country Meadows has the most evictions uh, in the state. It is the busiest court for evictions. We also have Judge Gerald Williams with us from the North Valley Justice Court. Uh, Judge Williams uh, currently is the Michael J. Ryan uh, Judicial Officer of the Year from the State Bar, uh, and um, he is, is also incredibly knowledgeable on evictions and in most matters in the law, so we're very pleased to have him. Currently off screen, but sharing a, a camera with Judge Williams is Constable Mike Branham. Uh, he is the constable for the Arrowhead Precinct. Uh, he uh, has a long law enforcement background, uh, and his greatest accomplishment was hiring me uh, to be the chief hearing officer at the Department of Juvenile Corrections. Uh, so we will finish our program with uh, Constable Branham, and we will begin our presentation with uh, Judge Williams. Thank you. I thought we'd start off with sort of a brief overview as to what a residential eviction is and what it looks like and, and what its components are. Um, it determines who has a right to possession, but, but not title. You can't litigate title in a residential eviction action. That works whether it's filed in Superior Court or in Justice Court. Um, if you have a question concerning title, that has to be a different type of, of litigation. Uh, residential evictions in Arizona are a little bit confusing. Represented by an attorney, although there are a lot of landlords that represent themselves. 
and the tenant walks up to the, the bench and I'll look at the tenant and say, your landlord's claiming you haven't paid rent for May, is that correct? And if they say yes, then I say why? And I'm listening for anything that sounds like a defense. If you get a mixture of financial hardship or my landlord is a jerk, that's not a defense to non-payment of rent. But if you get something like, well, it's been really hard since he cut off the power, then that's a, a, a timeout. You have to stop and explore that. But generally the only uh, defense to non-payment of rent is that the rent was paid in the manner that's, that's prescribed in the lease. That assumes all the procedural requirements have been met, and there, there are many, many of those. But if, if the, the tenant admits that they haven't paid rent, they don't, have an, they don't have a defense, there's not anything to try a case about. It, it's a summary proceeding, and the, the judge can make a decision with, with that limited information. Um, there are various types of landlord-tenant cases in Arizona. There are uh, residential uh, landlord-tenant cases, which we, we generally deal with primarily. Um, I'm fortunate to only have one mobile home park in my precinct, so I, I don't deal with that many mobile home cases. And I've been doing... But that's when the landlord owns the land and the tenant owns the, the trailer, the mobile home, and the tenant is just renting the space. Throughout almost every mobile home park in Arizona, the, the tenant moved out and left the trailer behind. And so when you have that situation, the tenant moves in, and there's a chance that they're really renting the trailer as well as the space. And if that's the case, then the Residential Landlord-Tenant Act applies, not the, the mobile home park one. So mobile home parks are tricky. When I get them, I have to stop and look, and look stuff up. But roughly 98% of the cases that are, are Residential Landlord-Tenant cases are the ones that the Residential Landlord-Tenant Act applies. You'll hear people talk about an innkeeper statute from time to time and stuff like that. Those are interesting, but those statutes predate the Landlord-Tenant Act. So if you have a landlord-tenant case, you need to start there. And then you also need to look at the Arizona uh, court rules that govern uh, residential landlord-tenant cases. At the time those were written, they were back in 2009 that they were adopted, but at the time they were written, Arizona was the only state that had a set of court rules for residential landlord-tenant cases. Um, and every now and then you'll, you'll encounter a, an attorney who's applying the rules of civil procedure to the eviction case, and those don't really apply. You, you need to find the right set of court rules. They're in the West book if you, if you buy the... The, the Arizona Court Rules book from West, or they're also available on, online through Westlaw or just uh, regular spaces. Both the landlord and the tenant have, have clearly defined duties. The landlord has to provide a copy of the lease to the tenant, and they have to notify the, land, the, the tenant about the Arizona Landlord-Tenant Act. 
sometimes they will hand uh, a copy of the Landlord-Tenant Act to the tenant, or they'll just say, go to the Secretary of State's webpage, find it yourself. Um, if the, the tenant doesn't have a copy of the lease, or they don't have a copy of the Landlord-Tenant Act, there's really not that much of a remedy for the tenant. They can demand a copy of the lease. They could give some kind of cure notice, I guess, and try to move out. But if you've gotten all the way to a trial and the tenant doesn't have a copy of the lease, that's not going to be grounds for not paying rent or, or something like that. The landlord obviously has to deliver possession of the dwelling. That's sort of the whole point. You're not paying rent for anything other than living there. And the landlord also has a duty to maintain a, a fit premises. If the landlord is not maintaining a fit premises, then the tenant has two main options depending on how bad the, the situation is. If it's something that uh, impacts material health and safety, and right now, uh, at least in Phoenix, that would be air conditioning. So if the landlord, uh, if the air conditioning goes out, the landlord um, is not fixing it, the tenant can give the landlord a five-day written notice that says fix my air conditioning or I'll hire a licensed contractor, fix it myself, I'll move out or I'll terminate the lease. Uh, I'll break the lease and move out. Um, if it's something that's not material health and safety, then it's a 10-day notice, maybe a, a cracked window or a, a leaking faucet or something like that. Then you can give, the tenant can give the landlord a 10-day notice saying if you don't fix this in 10 days, I'm going to hire a licensed contractor and fix it myself. Um, we typically don't see those cases in court because if the tenant did it right, then we're not going to see that case. Um, unfortunately, there, there are cases where tenants do things wrong. They moved in from a jurisdiction where they can, they can rent strike or they see something on TV or something on the internet that they can rent strike and they'll say, well, I'll get my landlord's attention. I'll just stop paying my rent. Well, if you do that in Arizona, you're going to get evicted for non-payment of rent. And it it turns a case where the tenant could win. The tenant had a good case. The tenant had substantial rights if they just followed the, the law correctly. It turns that into a case where the landlord wins because the tenant didn't pay their rent. There are some offsets and some diminished value claims and things like that that can be raised. But in the, the worst, one of the worst things a tenant can do in Arizona is, is a rent strike, is, is stop paying rent because they're having some kind of dispute with the landlord. Um, and then on the, the tenant column there, what's the number one duty? Pay rent. Uh, the tenant has an absolute obligation to pay rent. The tenant also has to maintain a fit premises. They can't let garbage pile up or, um, or, or, or something like that. They have to follow whatever the rules are. They have to permit access, and I apologize, there's a a mistake on this slide I didn't catch until last night. The the statute for uh, a tenant permitting access is 33-13-43, not 44. So just make that slight correction. I, I apologize, I didn't catch that until last night. Um, 44 is the next one down uh, that they can only use uh, property as a dwelling. But the, the, the landlord can't just barge into the property. The landlord, uh, in most cases, has to give a two-day notice, a 48-hour notice. Hey, I'm going to come inspect the property. I'm going to come and see what's going on. The exceptions to that are if there's an emergency, if there's if the 
property's on fire, you know, or, or there's some kind of emergency going on, then the landlord can go in. Also, the, the landlord can go in if the tenant's made a, a maintenance request or some kind of repair request. You can't, um, if you're the tenant, you can't demand the, the air filters be changed and the maintenance man comes by to change the air filters and then claim abuse of access. It, it, it doesn't work that way. But even though it's the, the landlord's property, they can't just come in unannounced. Um, I had a case once where there was a, a house and they were uh, selling the house and the, the landlord actually introduced uh, pictures of the inside of the house showing what a horrible condition the house was and it had some kids playing with toys in the picture and the, the tenant said well who are these kids playing with my kids toys and they said oh we took we took these pictures while you were gone on vacation um, and it was kind of a slam dunk on the counterclaim at that point and the the landlord figured out real quickly that they had goofed up and they were trying to just well we'll just dismiss the case and I'm like well it it doesn't work that way now that you have introduced evidence to prove the tenant's counterpoint for abuse of access. So um, every now and then you get something comical, uh, but that's that's generally uh, uh, a landlord just can't barge in. Um, you hear sometimes landlords barge in when tenants are taking a shower or something like that. You, you can't do that. Um, on breaches, uh, most things can be cured. It, it, it will, there's a, a slide coming after this one about notices, but almost everything can be fixed. There, there are curable things and things that you can fix, but generally the landlord has to give an opportunity for the tenant to fix whatever the problem is before they, they proceed with the, the residence. So like a, a non-compliance issue, again, like trash building up or, or something like that. If you have um, unauthorized occupants. This is different than, you know, grandma comes to visit for Christmas. This is someone who's moved in and they shouldn't be the living there. They're not on the lease. Um, sometimes it's someone who wouldn't qualify to be a tenant moves in. Um, the, the remedy there for the landlord is to give a 10-day notice that says this person has to leave. If you have unauthorized pets, if you're authorized for, for one pet and you, your, your dog has a litter and you keep the litter, um, that may be a problem. You may have to get get rid of some of those pets. Now, uh, the uh, service dogs aren't aren't pets, um, so you don't you don't have that issue. If someone's claiming that they have a service lizard or something like that, which happened in a case that wasn't mine, then then you may have a, a a more interesting issue. But service dogs don't count as pets. But if you have if you're authorized for one dog or one small dog and you bring in a St. Bernard, then that's that's going to create an issue. Um, and you can't be noisy. You can't disturb your neighbors, uh, especially twice. Um, so things that are non-curable, if, if you ignore it, if you do it twice, if, you, if it's something that's uh, a material non-compliance on the lease, uh, and there's another column there that, that should come up in a second here. But the... Um, Oh, and I'm sorry, non-payment of rent at the bottom is obviously curable. You, you cure non-payment of rent by, by paying the rent. If you can't pay all of the rent and the landlord is willing to do a partial payment agreement with you, um, then you can sign that and the lease continues 
as long as you, you can pay half of the rent and then pay the other half at the other at the end of the month, perhaps. Um, if you're you have a second act of non-compliance, that's not going to be curable. Uh, a criminal record, a prior eviction history, a current criminal activity, those types of things. If you lie on your, your rental application, say no, I've never been evicted, and the background check comes back and says, oh, yeah, you you have been evicted. And then things that we call an immediate which are usually criminal uh, misconduct. Uh, if you if you threaten the property manager with a gun, that, that would do it. Uh, things like that. The immediate and irreparable, though, if you're a, an attorney and you get a client who's accused of something, uh, shooting a gun in the apartment and goes through a wall or something like that, um, some of these immediate cases are, are fairly hard to prove. Um, so don't assume that because your uh, your client was arrested that you don't have anything you can work with them on on a landlord tenant matter uh, a lot of these cases if the, if the landlord has to prove them they require a police officer to come and testify on short notice and that may or may not happen so there if, if your client is, is facing an immediate eviction there's nothing wrong with contacting the landlord or the landlord's attorney and say hey can we you know my client can move out. He needs two days to move out. You know, will you let him move out in, in two days? Uh, we'll turn the keys back in. We promise, and just dis you know, he'll pay the rent that's owing, and just dismiss it. And that way, they don't have uh, an eviction action on their record. So even if your client is facing a a, a bad situation, that doesn't mean that uh, something should be just uh, forfeited. Arizona is a very, very uh, notice-driven uh, landlord-tenant law. Uh, every every type of thing requires a notice. Every type of thing, uh, the the tenant is given an opportunity to, to cure. Even immediates that can't be cured still have to have a notice. So for non-payment of rent, the five-day notice has to say how much rent is due. For mobile home park, it's seven days. Um, so it's rent plus late fees. Arizona is what's called a stay and pay jurisdiction. So if the landlord, uh, uh, say the tenant doesn't pay rent, most rent is due on the first, the landlord can give a five-day notice on, on day six. And then after that, um, the, the five-day notice has to say, you, have, you owe this much, this is how much you owe in late fees. If you don't either pay your rent or, or move out, then I'm going to file a uh, writ of, I'm going to file an eviction action against you. And at that point, you're on the hook. The tenant is on the hook for the rent plus the late fees plus the court cost, which is the uh, service of pro the process server and the filing fee and then the attorney's fees. But even if the tenant shows up on the day of the trial, of the day of the initial appearance, and has all the money there, um, then the judge dismisses the case uh, if the tenant can pay everything that's due on that day. Uh, the 10 day notice, we, these are for the unauthorized occupants or breach. Uh, if there's some kind of health and safety issue, uh, maybe there's a cleanliness issue because the um, bugs are, are developing or, or something like that. Um, failure to provide access, the tenant can't just say, no, landlord, you, this, is, this is my apartment, you can never come in. That doesn't work. Or if the lease expires, if it's a 30-day 
um, if, if the lease is coming up to an end and for whatever reason the, the landlord doesn't want to extend the lease, the landlord doesn't have to extend the lease. They can say, you're done. Um, but that is sort of evictions in a nutshell. And I maybe talk kind of fast, but we have a lot of stuff to cover today. And just to, to make things interesting, the, the previous slide were time frames for the Arizona Residential Landlord Tenant Act. There, as um, Judge Williams explained a few minutes ago, there is also the Mobile Home Park Act uh, that is at 33-1476. The time frames for the notices in that act are different. And again, keep in mind for mobile home parks, we're talking about where you are renting not the actual mobile home, uh, but the space under the mobile home so that you actually own the mobile home, not the space. So the curable notice is non-payment of rent. You actually get a seven-day notice, and of course you can reinstate that prior to judgment. For a material breach of non-compliance, you have 14 days to cure, or 30 days to terminate the lease. For non-compliance, health and safety, there's 10 days to cure and 20 days to terminate the lease. Uh, those items that are not non-curable include an immediate notice and a repetitive non-compliance is a 30-day notice. All right, um, so now we're going to switch gears a little. We're going to talk about uh, different types of subsidies or uh, government help uh, for rental and how this might change some of the things from the, the landlord-tenant relationship. So public housing, this is housing that is administered directly by the housing authority. So these would be city-owned housing or HUD housing, where they, uh, where, where they own the property and then the qualified tenants uh, live in that property and pay rental to the government themselves. And then the other, uh, there, there's different types of subsidy. This is not an uh, all-inclusive list. This, but just the two me, which is subsidized housing. So in the subsidized housing, the tenants uh, have to qualify uh, because of income. And then based on their income, they have to pay uh, usually 30% of their income for housing, which is considered a, um, an affordability measure. And then the rest of the rent is paid by the government agency. Uh, in this case, it's the federal government for Section 8. So the tenant can, um, they can choose their own housing. They, if they find a landlord that's willing to take the subsidy so then part of the rent or all of the rent, depending on how it's split up, is paid uh, by the government and then the tenant only has to pay their portion of the rent. Uh, it is important to understand that these are separate obligations that the housing authority has and that the tenant has, and that even if the housing authority is paying their portion of the rent, the tenant is still obligated to pay their part and they can get a notice 
for non-payment of rent if they're not paying their portion of the rent. Um, the law recently has changed that even if the the tenant's portion is a very small portion, they if, and the landlord has taken the federal money, uh, that does not count as a partial payment, and the tenant can still be evicted uh, for not paying their portion of the rent. The problem with these subsidized housing is that there's, uh, well, there was before this crisis uh, a six-year waiting list to be able to get some kind of federal subsidy. So for any tenant who loses a subsidized home, being able to get back on uh, a subsidized program uh, could be nearly impossible. So um, if you were to get a tenant that is in subsidized housing, uh, this is something that you really need to uh, try to resolve, if possible, in a way that the tenant doesn't end up with an eviction on their record and that they end up uh, being able to maintain the subsidy uh, with the um, with the housing authority. The, the good thing about the subsidy, though, is that it, it, it belongs to the tenant, so they can move out of a property and they can take that subsidy with them to another property. So the fact that they move out of a certain home doesn't mean that they're losing their their subsidy. But also understand that any time that they're being sued for non-payment of rent, it should only be for their portion. If the housing authority hasn't paid for some uh, whatever reason, that is the relationship between the housing authority and the landlord. The tenant is not responsible for that part of the rent as long as the subsidy is still in place. Judge, let me just uh, briefly interject here. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with how Zoom works, th at the bottom of your screen there is a bubble that says chat, and if you want to press on that, you can go ahead and ask questions. Some of the questions we will answer on the air, others we'll just answer in the chat box, but you should be aware that that is um, a feature. Uh, it's a little odd doing this to a computer and, and not to actually see faces and raised hands, uh, but, but that is an option. All right, well, thank you. that's a good point. I mean, we obviously, you know, ask questions as we go along. Hopefully we'll have time at the end of the presentation uh, to take questions also. Um, so these are just some numbers just to have an idea of, because we're going to go into now uh, how this COVID situation uh, differs for uh, cases of public and subsidized housing and for the other types of rental units. So there were uh, 43 million occupied rental units in the United States in 2018. Uh, 22 million were single-family properties, 19.5 million multifamily properties, what we here in the Valley know as apartment complexes. Um, but anything that has more than five units is considered multifamily. And then the other types the mobile homes, boats, RVs. Uh, this, about 28% of all rental units have federally backed loans. So these are loans that were backed by Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, HUD, or FHA loans, or VA loans. Um, and so that, that, that is about 28% of all the units. And then the other federal subsidies would be about another 5 million households. Uh, which include the public housing, the vouchers, and any of these other types of programs, smaller programs that are out there uh, that give subsidies for uh, needy population. 
in Arizona, um, I, I was unable to find a breakdown of how many federally backed mortgages they are. Uh, I did recently find um, a shortcut link uh, to find if a property um, is, does have a federally backed loan. Um, that I, I guess is to help the tenants because they wouldn't have any way of knowing uh, what kind of uh, loan their landlord has. Uh, the attorneys obviously um, can go to the recorder's office. They would have more resources to be able to find out this information if needed. But this is the breakdown in Arizona of the properties that have federal assistance. This does not, like I said, include the federal backed mortgages. But we have to assume that it's within the 30%, which is the national rate. So back in March, um, if anyone can remember that far back now, uh, this is uh, the, the type of headlines that we were seeing, which was making everything very, very confusing. You know, one day we heard that uh, federal evictions were, were stopped and the city evictions were stopped. And then the, um, the headlines were very misleading because it was suspending moratoriums. They talked about halted evictions. It was not very clear what was going on. Um, the, 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 this one, the, the, Phoenix area rent, the Phoenix area renters facing eviction could get help. That was also a misleading headline for what that article in particular was talking about. And so it was just a very, very confusing situation. It was, it was about two weeks of mass confusion. People didn't know if they had to pay their rent, if they could be evicted. Uh, we weren't very clear on what was happening. So this is the breakdown on how that, uh, how that happened. On March 13th, uh, the day. On the 15th, uh, the city of Phoenix halted evictions for city-owned housing, which of course everyone thought that meant all evictions in the city of Phoenix but it was just the public housing owned by the city of Phoenix. On March 18th, the moratorium of foreclosures and evictions for FHA mortgages, and that was a 60-day moratorium. That one is really not that important because then uh, the CARES Act by the, the 27th covered all that and expanded it. So then on March 24th is when the governor's order uh, suspending evictions for 120 days in Arizona was signed and we will get in depth into that executive order but i want to touch uh, first upon the cares act this is the uh the coronavirus relief emergency stimulus act that was passed by congress and it was signed into law on march 27th it, it's the one that has the stimulus checks and and the, the help for small businesses everything that you know we, we We've been hearing about that happened uh, with the, the, the federal aid packages, but included in that CARES Act was a moratorium on evictions on properties with federally backed mortgages or federal subsidies. And this is a moratorium for 120 days. That is why I started off explaining what the federally uh, backed mortgage uh, housing was because anybody who lives in a rental unit that is covered by one of these mortgages or by any type of federal subsidy, there's a, just a straight moratorium on evictions. They cannot file eviction 
the CARES Act actually says they can't even um, they can't even collect late fees on anything. It's just a straight moratorium on all of these. But it just stops evictions for 120 days and with no explanation on what happens when the 120 days are up. So it, uh, the, the, the CARES Act uh, applies to all tenants and not this, just those affected by COVID-19. So it was a blanket moratorium. The tenant doesn't have to prove that they've been affected by COVID. That landlord um, is just prohibited from filing any type of eviction or starting an eviction action in those cases. There is a forbearance included here for mortgages. Um, the, the forbearance um, has its own way of doing, they have to do it for 30 days and they have to request an, uh, an, an additional forbearance. But the important part with the forbearance is that if they have the forbearance, uh, they cannot evict anyone during the time that they are in forbearance. And then this is what I already explained, that anything with federal-backed loans, the, the moratorium is complete. And in the packet, you we have given you the actual language of the CARES Act, um, an information sheet that, that is a little um, more helpful, that breaks down what that applies to. We've given you the governor's executive order, our uh, the Maricopa County Justice Court best practice that addresses that, the Maricopa uh, County Constable's best practice that addresses that, and a notice that was drafted by the Arizona Supreme Court for tenants to give to their landlords. So as Judge Huberman explained in that timeline, um, we received no warning that the governor was going to issue this executive order. Uh, Constable Branham might have had some warning about that, but we did not. Uh, so this hit us one uh, that afternoon, and um, as you'll see from the slides that are coming up, the executive order itself is, when you get rid of the fancy title at the top, two pages long. Uh, and it raises about 6,000 questions. And so we've been attempting to answer those questions as best we can. Um, and as they arise, uh, we, we can't create documents that are 6,000 pages long. Uh, but we, we are trying to provide appropriate guidance on those questions. So that is Governor's Executive Order 2020-14, and that is for non-payment of rent and other eviction cases. It does specifically exclude material non-compliance and immediate evictions. And what it does is it orders that peace officers and constables temporarily delay enforcement of eviction action orders for residential premises if there is a COVID-19 reason. And we interpreted this to mean that the process, that the laws of eviction have not changed in Arizona, uh, that when we actually will issue a writ when a writ, after the judgment, if the tenant has not moved out within five days, the landlord can ask for a writ, uh, um, a writ of restitution to evict the tenant, and um, we will go ahead and issue that writ, but if the tenant has complied with the executive order and shows that to the constable, then the constable will not enforce the writ. But the COVID-19 reasons that are contained in the executive order 
are a quarantine due to illness, um, that they're ordered by a doctor to self-quarantine, that someone else in the household has, has COVID-19, that there are health conditions that put tenants at risk. And we can go into a whole litany of, of what exactly those might include. Uh, that there's a substantial loss of income, including a job loss, less income, or they need to take care of homebound children. Our kids are not going to school, uh, so literally anyone can allege that. Uh, for tenants who've had difficulty paying rent all along, uh, they, they can now claim that uh, COVID is a reason that they're having more difficulty paying their rent. And then, of course, the catch-all of other pertinent circumstances, uh, which can include anything that is pertinent. And what the tenant must, the, the burden is on the tenant. Uh, and that, again, we interpret it to be after the writ of restitution is ordered, although the tenant can certainly do it earlier. So they are to notify the landlord in writing and uh, the executive order just says writing. We interpreted that that could include uh, an email or text message. Uh, the governor's office did uh, review our, at least the first draft of our, uh, or the original incantation of our executive order, and they said that it, it was a correct interpretation of the executive order. Um, so the governor's office did intend that emails or text messages would apply. Uh, the tenant is to attach documentation, if any. Some of the stuff can be hard, if not impossible, to document. Uh, if you're an Uber driver, um, how do you document other than showing this is historically what I've earned in the last few months, this is what I earned in April of last year, and this is what I earned in April this year. Uh, and, you know, that is apparently because nobody wants to get into a stranger's car. Uh, and they also have to acknowledge that the terms of the lease remain in effect. This is where the tenant has to be um, more careful. If you look at the notice in the packet that is attached in your packet, there is, uh, it, it is contained in there that the tenant acknowledges that the terms of the lease remain in effect. If the tenant is using a different notice or just sending a text message, then chances are they're going to forget that they need to say this. Uh, and if they forget that they need to say that, then um, they're, they're putting themselves at risk or, or not, not adequately invoking the protections of the executive order. One of the things that um, the executive order did specifically also include is that the landlord cannot interpret COVID-19 as a health and safety reason to terminate the lease. So that means that um, the landlord cannot say, well, you have COVID-19, you are a threat to the health and safety of the other tenants in our building and um, uh, therefore going to evict you. Uh, one of the other major provisions of the executive order are that the obligation to pay rent and other obligations under the lease remain. And so what that means is, because um, remember the executive order is up to 120 days. That goes into July. 
when this initially came out, there were some tenants who believed that they did not have to continue to pay rent. Well, um, the obligation to pay rent continues. If there is still a COVID reason why a person cannot pay rent during that 120-day period, um, then they can invoke the protections of the executive order. Um, but the judgment, uh, the final judgment of, of eviction for non-payment of rent is going to continue to increase for any rent that does remain unpaid. Uh, and then the other obligation part, that includes obligations on the part of the landlord. Uh, we're not going to allow the landlord to say, well, you didn't pay rent for April, um, so I'm shutting off your water or shutting off your air conditioning. Uh, so it, it is a concomitant uh, requirement that both parties comply with the terms of the lease in order to invoke the protection of the executive order. And what happens at that point is if, if a constable, if the tenant has provided the appropriate notice to the landlord, when the constable goes to enforce the writ of restitution, uh, the constable will not enforce it. And so the landlord then has the burden of coming into court and filing a motion to compel. And so the court at that point has to determine on the motion to compel that enforcement is necessary. So again, the constable goes to execute the writ, the tenant informs the constable that they have a COVID reason and that enforcement should be delayed. Uh, one of the great things that our constables did was the executive order didn't say how long tenants had to provide that notice. Uh, so the constables agreed in their best practice and uh, the justice court put it in our best practice that what the constable should do is give the tenant five additional days to notify the landlord in writing uh, that, that they believe they have the, the ability to invoke the protections of the executive order. Uh, and I believe some of the constables even have what, the notice in their possession, Constable Branham. At the end of the presentation, Constable Branham is going to tell you what is happening out in the field, and, and that'll be fascinating. Uh, so, in that instance, the constable does not execute the writ, uh, and the landlord must file the motion to compel execution of the writ if they believe the tenant's reason is insufficient or it would be in the interest of justice to compel the enforcement of the writ. We don't have a definition of what the interest of justice to enforce, uh, to enforce the writ would be. So some of the issues that, that at, at first read, the first, um, when we first got the order on March 24th, um, the first topics that came up, then we'll go into the other ones that came up uh, later as, as, as we began um, having cases come up by this executive order, then more and more issues seem to have been creative and resolved by the order. Um, but the, the first issues that we uh, we noticed was that it talked about tenant, and it did talk about residential units, but it didn't specify which tenants were covered or not covered by the executive order. So we interpreted that tenants would include mobile home um, 
tenants also, not just uh, the, uh, the, the Arizona Residential Landlord Tenant Act, but also the Mobile Home Act and the RV Act, although, again, we've really never, ever seen RV cases. Uh, maybe in some rural parts of the state, the RV <coughs> case might be more, more common. But, um, and then it says that the tenant would provide the notice to the landlord or property owner. In the regular statutes and rules for eviction actions, when we refer to the landlord, um, it refers to the actual landlord or the owner of the property who should be identified in the lease. Normally, tenants do not deal with their landlords. They deal with a property manager, either in the multifamily um, complexes, there would be a manager who lives on the property or who has an office on the property, and that is the person that they deal with. And we get a lot of issues that the tenants don't understand that all legal notices need to go to the actual landlord, not to the manager. But because of the situation and because of the urgency and the type of notice that this executive order mentions, we determined that they could give these notices to their property manager. Uh, that has actually not been an issue. The property managers accept these. Uh, they have not. I personally haven't had any case where anyone invoked that they gave it to the wrong person. Uh, in writing, uh, I, the, Charles Adonato already explained uh, how we determined that the in writing could be uh, by text message or by email, that it didn't have to be with a formal notice, which is part of the Arizona Landlord Tenant Act. So although we do agree that the, the eviction statutes have not been suspended and that those statutes still apply, anything that has to do with the application of the executive order does not necessarily have to follow the formality that is in the Arizona Residential Landlord Tenant Act. Um, in writing, in the Arizona Residential Landlord Tenant Act has to be delivered in hand or by certified mail. Uh, in hand here was impossible because one of the first things that happened was that everyone closed down their offices and so the tenants really had no way to get anything in person to anyone. Um, but a lot of the offices did uh, give out their email addresses and ask tenants to communicate that way. So in writing has been mostly done by text messages or by email. And then again, the available supporting documentation, that is an ongoing issue. Uh, tenants don't know how to collect the documentation they need. Tenants don't have the documentation they need. A lot of people were just told by their employers, don't come back, we're closing, there's no more job. They have nothing in writing to show that they have been laid off or they've been let go. Um, a, a lot of the gig economy workers uh, also don't have documentation in writing. And this does create an issue uh, sometimes for landlords who are very insistent on wanting the executive order or the rest uh, restitution to be executed. Um, they will try to argue the fact that there's no sufficient documentation. Um, it, it, it becomes a factual issue for the judges to determine. but taking into account that a lot of this documentation does not exist. There is um, the, the, the underlying medical conditions has been another issue that how is that documented? What is it that they need to show? So if someone has 
um, an underlying heart condition and they bring you papers from the doctor dated from December showing that they had, they were in the hospital because they had some, some heart condition. Is that documentation sufficient to show that they have an underlying condition today in May? Or do they need a current note from the doctor? The executive order doesn't require them to go to the doctor and get the note. So all of these are issues that are created. Some of them uh, definitely will be uh, determined on a um, on a case-to-case basis, uh, dependent on the judge who hears the case. And um, the, specifically not covered by the executive order, let's remember that the executive order came out on March 24th. By then, uh, by Judge Williams' timeline, um, we had already um, issued a lot of judgments in the month of March because we were already three weeks into the month, and so a lot of judgments had already been signed at that point. And so the question was, did this executive order apply to those judgments that had been already signed in the month of March? Uh, we determined that they had because the reason for the executive order was not to uh, remove people from their homes in a pandemic situation. And so what it, the executive order actually does is just halt the execution of the writ, not the eviction itself. And so whatever tenant already had a, a, an eviction and a writ of restitution, they could still invoke um, the, the possibility of uh, invoking the protections of that executive order, uh, even on judgments that had been signed prior. I'm sorry, Gerald, did I jump into your topics? No, you're, you're Go good. This, this, Go was a big, this, was, this was your issue. You, you raised that, and you were the, the sort of the champion for that, because um, a lot of landlords initially claimed that, well, if, if you couldn't pay your rent on March 1st, how was that COVID related? How did that have anything to do with anything? And uh, when we revised our best practice, we, we had a best practice and we amended it to cover some new issues that came up. We, uh, there was really no dispute among the judges that of course uh, it would apply to judgments in March. Um, the time frame for the court to consider the motion to compel, um, and incidentally the, the governor's order doesn't call it a motion to compel, we just invented that term uh, because it was a, an easy way to explain what was going on. We decided that it should be set for a hearing within five days, um, five calendar days. And um, uh, and even if it was obvious from the motion to compel that we were going to grant it, we decided we should still have a hearing on it just to explain to the tenant what's going on. Um, because there was so much confusion surrounding this, um, I've had so many tenants get very, very angry with me when, you know, I say, well, I'm gonna call the governor's office. I'm gonna, I'm, you're free to do so. But the, this is how this is going to work. And the, the goal is, for the, the constable not knocking on their door not to be a surprise. So that they, they at least have some way to know that something could potentially be coming. Now on the, the motions to compel, the ones I've done, uh, quite frankly, the and, and we're doing everything telephonically right now, 
either through a regular telephone system or a conference call system in Maricopa County, the ones that the tenant has failed to appear for, um, they've lost. The ones that the tenant has appeared for, they've won. It, 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 it's really that simple. The, the governor's order is is fairly broad, and, and, they're, it's, um, and it's designed to be fairly broad. There, it, it's not especially difficult for a tenant um, to meet the criteria under that. But still, we had to just sort of invent a hearing procedure. So we, we decided to call it motion to compel enforcement of writ of restitution. Um, we decided that five days was a good time to set the hearing. Um, some of our tenants um, are getting their only notices through regular mail. We can call them if we have their phone number. We can send them an email if we have their email. But a lot of people are still only getting notice through regular mail, and that could take a few days. Um, so we decided even though it's the landlord's motion, the landlord is the one making the motion, the tenant is the one that has the burden of proof. That's reversed from normal motions where if you're making the motion, the, the, par the party making the motion has the burden of proof. The tenant is the one that has to say, hey, I'm, I'm seeking protection under this order. Uh, and we decided that the, the burden of proof was preponderance. It wasn't anything higher than the, than the regular civil standard. Um, does the tenant need to try to pay rent, um, seek unemployment, use their stimulus money to, to pay rent, all those kinds of things? Uh, maybe. They, maybe. Maybe they have a moral obligation to do that. Maybe they, they definitely have a legal obligation to pay rent at some point. But we discussed whether we could condition um, a stay of the writ of restitution on having the tenant pay at least something and quickly determine that that was contrary to the whole point of the governor's order. Yeah, so we, we're, uh, the tenant needs to, you know, does the tenant need to try to pay rent? Yes, they have an affirmative duty to still pay rent. But that's not going, if, if they can't pay rent or they don't pay rent, that's not going, that in and of itself is not going to keep us from po postponing the uh, writ of restitution. Uh, can a judge put an expiration date on the stay? I, I guess a judge could. We, to my knowledge, no, none of us have. If, if the landlord uh, files a motion to compel and they lose, then the landlord's remedy is to wait for the circumstances to change and follow yet another motion to compel. I haven't had a second motion to compel filed on a case yet. Um, I, I don't know that anyone has, but uh, I think as of March, I'm sorry, as of May 15th, I think we had done in Maricopa County about 67 motions to compel. I think that's what our public information officer came up with. And, you know, there are uh, the, 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 they went back and forth, but again, I think there are some landlords and certainly some landlord attorneys that quickly become very frustrated. Well, you're saying you just not pay rent until July. I'm like, well, that wasn't my order. You know, it, it, if, if you want to complain to the governor's office, you're, you're free to do that. But the, the order is to constables. The order is not to judges. And uh, an order to a judge would arguably be unconstitutional. But even though each justice court precinct has a constable, um, elected to represent that 
precinct and serve that precinct. The constables are under the executive branch. They're not under the, the judicial branch. And so that's why the governor can order them to do something or not to do something in this case. In this case, he's ordering them not to serve uh, the writ of restitution or not to execute it. Uh, if I may interrupt you, there was actually a case last week that one judge had uh, that was a second motion to compel on the same tenant. Okay. Did I stand corrected? Well, I, I mean, I, 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 I understand why you wouldn't know that. I, I just found out um, uh, because that judge contacted me. But I found it very interesting because nothing had changed and that landlord was very insistent. Um, they filed a second motion to compel, which was not granted. Uh, the, the most interesting part of that hearing was, though, that the attorney for the landlord actually argued that then the judge could order that the landlord didn't have to uh, fix the air conditioning or do anything in the in the unit because the rent was not being paid. Um, I, I mean, I think it was just uh, an argument for the sake of argument, but... Uh, Again, we I think we talked about that 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 the, the, no one's obligations uh, stop during this order. The landlord still needs to uh, continue uh, fixing things, which we understand creates a financial burden for landlords when they're not collecting rent. Yet they still have obligations. But you know, we're all in in in, in trying situation. It's not just one party or the other that's been affected by this. And that ties perfectly into the next slide. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the governor's order, it makes it clear that the intent was for rent to continue to accrue, and the tenant's still in possession of the property, so rent is going to continue to accrue. Um, so what happens with the subsequent unpaid months? The, the rent just continues to pile up. Um, does the landlord... Uh, amend the existing judgment, probably. That's probably what they're going to try to do. Um, the, the, we haven't received any of these yet because just the calendar hasn't hit that point in, in time yet. But our best guess is that landlords are going to file motions to amend judgments, which really never happens in eviction cases, um, and uh, to try to get the, the prior rent. The other remedies don't work as well, and I'll, I'll talk about those in a moment, but uh, it, it, it doesn't help the tenant to have two, three, four uh, eviction judgments against them. It'll, it'll make it almost impossible for them to, to obtain a rental housing again if, if they build up that type of a, 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 a record through really no fault of their own. Um, so we don't see a need for the landlord to file a new judgment every month uh, or a new complaint every month to get a new judgment every month. Just to get a, a writ of red line. What happens after 120 days? Are the writs automatically enforceable? Uh, probably. Um, and we'll let the constable talk about, you know, this is maybe his nightmare. Uh, the, what, what happens at the end of July? Do you suddenly have 6,000 writs? You know, to, to serve or, or whatever. Um, and then uh, what fees is the landlord entitled to? Are they entitled to late fees? Maybe. Um, we don't know. Are they entitled to early termination fees? 
but uh, probably not. I, I don't think they're going to be entitled to lease break fees. Um, those are a type of liquidated damages that that we think um, are inappropriate generally anyway. But uh, uh, entitled to hold over tenant. The, the, the problem with, one of the problems with the governor's order, it, it's hard to figure out what to do with a case in front of you if you don't know what the end game is. If, if you don't know what the, in any other setting, we know what the tenant's legal status is. We know what the landlord's legal status is. We apply law that in some cases hasn't changed much since William the Conqueror, you know, and went through uh, Europe. So. Uh, the, a lot of property law is, is not really new or innovative or anything like that. It's been around a long, long time. The legal status of a tenant who remains in possession of the residence while the execution of the writ of restitution has been postponed, though, is a new thing. That's, that's unclear. Uh, there's no recognized term or category to describe such a situation. The recognized options like holdover tenant, common law tenant at sufferance, trespass or squatter, um, none of those work. Um, and then as it's come up already, if the tenant's no longer a tenant, could the landlord turn off the utilities? Um, you can make an argument that if the landlord accepts rent after an eviction judgment has been signed, that that creates a new tenancy. But then that creates a whole other set of problems. So traditionally and unquestionably, an eviction judgment ends a lease, that terminates a lease. That's, that's been black letter law for a long, long time. However, our best practices committee had to come up with a legal fiction to make all of this work. So we determined um, that the only way to merge the executive order with Arizona law was to interpret the order as creating a temporary exception and hold that the residential lease during the time of the executive order was not terminated either until the writ was actually executed or until the tenant turned the keys back to the landlord. Um, that's the only thing that makes sense. No other option makes sense. And even though it's a legal fiction, that's what we had to go with. Um, that interpretation uh, furthers the intent of the executive order. It avoids what we decided was a really absurd result of the former tenant remaining in possession of the residence without protection of either a lease or the Arizona Landlord-Tenant Act. That's just, that's not reasonable. Um, so that's that's what we went with. And even though it's a legal fiction, that's the only way we can make everything make sense. Um, there may be some more uh, questions or, or concluding thoughts on that, but what I'd like to do now um, is turn the floor over to a constable who can tell us what actually is going on in the field because well, we deal with everything remotely and by conference call, and we're actually not even seeing any tenants in person right now. The constable actually has to go out and interact with these people and and see the see the drama and see the stress and see all the, the real-world complications. So I'm going to punt. Good morning, everyone, and, and thank you, Gerald. Uh, I'd first like to say I, I can't imagine uh, an hour's notice, uh, Charlie alluded to that earlier about how much time we actually had to prepare for this. We had an hour's notice from the governor's office that the executive order was forthcoming. Uh, I couldn't imagine having a better group of people than all of our justices of peace, the constables, uh, justice court administration, constables administration, and all the court staffs 
to pull this plan together. Without this, I think this would be a, a disaster that we've been able to avoid. Having said that, uh, the, one of the first things I would want to talk about is that that confusion that uh, Judge Hoberman talked about earlier it is still going on to some degree. It probably gets better every day. One of the things that we've really worked hard on is to get people to understand that Arizona evictions didn't stop, that instead you had to fit within the five categories, you had to make those notifications, and you had to follow the process. Our local news media has been really good uh, as partners in that endeavor, uh, but it's really been the court staffs in particular that I think have been the most helpful in getting the word out to people, along with the constables, on, on how they have to work this. It's not too unimaginable for all of you to understand that evictions in a normal set of circumstances are extremely dangerous for law enforcement personnel. Uh, you know, there are only two ways you can remove somebody or go into somebody's home. In a criminal aspect, it's a search warrant. Uh, for the civil stuff, it's a writ of restitution, and, and they're extremely dangerous in normal times. In these times with the confusion, it actually caused much more initial concern for me than almost anything else we've done in the last several years. Fortunately, that has gotten better. But every day, we still run across people who think the president stopped evictions, the governor stopped evictions. Uh, you have to let me stay here for free for 120 days. You know, it's all still out there. So programs like today's and the panelists that you have in front of you today have been really very good at helping all of us to get that word out to people. But we still have much more to do. I can't imagine that they're going to extend this, but it is a possibility that the governor's office could extend the executive order and we would continue on through the summer with this. Uh, to that point about after July, I think uh, Judge Williams is absolutely right. I think we're going to see a huge spike. Uh, we're already beginning to prepare for that as constables uh, simply because we think that workload is, is coming. But I, I think the good news is we've been able to help a lot of people along the process actually find ways to solve this. For those that, from the Bar Association that are just joining this morning and haven't spent a lot of time in this arena, one of the best things I saw in this entire endeavor was the number of folks from uh, each one of the management companies or the plaintiffs themselves that would look at what the defendants gave them in writing and actually accept those terms and conditions and keep those people in place voluntarily. That allowed us to sit those uh, writs of restitution aside, uh, I think the number of 67 really indicates uh, the number of, of cases that were, were unsuccessful. You don't hear about all the ones where the plaintiff and the defendant were able to reach a term together and stay in place and really fit what I think the governor's executive order was, was designed to do, and that's to keep the pandemic from getting worse. So there's a, there's a lot of really good news out there, too. I think sometimes we, we have to focus on the negative. But I was very pleased to see the number of people who are cooperative and helpful. Where we see emergent conditions today, we still show up at times and have somebody hand us a new quarantine order. Now that's gonna make our next round, we talked about uh, motions to compel and what might happen after that. If we show up, even with a motion to compel hearing, and we find somebody who now has a medical quarantine order, we'll be back in touch with the court again on that because obviously those are emergent conditions where public health is going to be the order of the day. And we're gonna to have to work with each individual judge and their staff and maybe plaintiff's attorneys and others to try to find an individual solution to that problem. And we are seeing those. Uh, some people, particularly in that category that you saw under the executive order that deals with underlying conditions. 
I think that's going to be one of our new challenges for this month and potentially lots and lots of new quarantine orders signed by medical personnel uh, demanding that somebody be left in quarantine status for X number of weeks. Um, I think that's our, our really our next bigger challenge. Uh, the other one, in addition to just helping people understand what the rules really are, are the ones dealing with uh, what happens when you show up with a motion to compel and you've missed your court appearance. Uh, the constables have gone back now and tried to work really hard to make sure that we get contact information on our first contact and send that to the court so the court has a way to get a hold of somebody. But I have been very surprised in the field to find a number of people who don't have, according to them, either cell telephone or email capability. And the only way the court can, can contact them is through the mail. So we're all working really hard to see if we can, we can work on that issue. We had a meeting yesterday with community legal services that I thought was very productive. Uh, they're trying to find a way that they can impact that, for instance, and make sure that defendants have a way to be notified uh, of upcoming court appearances. We also have judges, uh, a number of them are even panels today, who have told uh, plaintiffs to come up with innovative ways to post those potential hearings, even as going as far as to place hearing notices on the uh, office windows at the apartment complexes saying, defendant so-and-so has a court appearance by telephone on this date and time in this court. And I urge us to continue to find those innovative ways to continue with us. Uh, again, I've been pleased that Charlie and his staff have amended these uh, best practices a couple of different times because every time we learn a new lesson, we get better at this. Uh, let's all hope we don't have to get better at it again in the future, but what it really underlines is this has been a good team effort that has been successful despite all the things we talked about today that were limitations. So with that, we're certainly available to answer questions. So I, I'll jump in if we don't have any questions while we're waiting for questions. Um, one of the things that, uh, that we've been seeing, and I agree with the constable that um, I think that we see the outliers of the cases. We don't see... Um, the bulk of the cases. And I think that just the fact that our eviction filings have gone down by 65% is indicative that the landlords are working with the tenants, that tenants are paying, the tenants that can't pay have been paid. And the ones that have been affected financially are, are reaching agreements with their landlords, which is definitely what we want to see. Um, but that being said, please be aware that because the, 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 the terms of the lease remain in effect, that if the tenant becomes uh, a little relaxed in his situation, that they might find themselves with a new eviction, maybe for another reason at that point. Uh, maybe someone who had originally had a non-payment of rent, now the landlord tried to get them out with a uh, a material non-compliance notice um, they're smoking marijuana in the apartment or you know there could be other reasons why they could try to get them out and then those would not be under the protection of the executive order so tenants still have to be a little uh, they have to be wary but they also have to be compliant with the the rest of the conditions of the lease um, and because you know, the, the, the big concern um, 
before all this happened, by the time when March, uh, before March, the, the rental market was very, very tight. There was a lack of affordable housing. There weren't enough units for people. And any tenant that was evicted, immediately the landlord could have someone in that unit as soon as the unit was clean. So the turnaround was pretty quick and the landlord didn't have any particular incentives to keep a bad tenant or a tenant who was always late on pay to keep them in place. We don't know what this market is going to look like come August. Um, right now, I mean, I've, anecdotally, I've heard that there are people still moving, people are moving in, but we don't know what's going to happen once all of these evictions hit at once. Are these students going to be able to be filled? Are the landlords going to find themselves in a position where they can just uh, evict 50% of their tenants and or were they be more compelled to work with them and try to work something out. At this point to know uh, exactly what that is going to look like and what the landlords want to do. Um, I, I mean, I have been hearing that, you know, it goes on much longer and some of these landlords property homes um, start losing their homes. Uh, that will depress again the, the rental market might make, uh, again, a buying market for speculators. It's, you know, at this point, it's very hard to know, and I just hope that we all keep working on the focus that we need to keep the tenants in their home, that um, that is the only way to actually stimulate the economy and to get things going is not by uh, making, you know, 50% of our rental population uh, lose their homes and not being able to, to rent. And, you know, again, the other issue is that they do have now, that have had eviction judgments against them, or those that may end up with the eviction judgments in July, but eviction judgment on their record makes it difficult to rent in the future. I've heard stories of people right now not being able to rent because they have an eviction judgment on their record. So right now it seems that the landlords are not yet reached that point where they are start for tenants so I mean just just things to consider I'm just bringing that up as something to consider you know and, and judge that's a really great point uh, we have those kinds of conversations and some of those initial contacts uh, at the constable level one of the things that's been I think really good is to get people to actually download look at and understand that executive order from the governor because there is so much confusion about it one of the first things almost everyone tells me when I get them to download that document is, oh, you mean I still have to pay, I still have to follow the rules, and I'm still responsible for the upkeep of my place. Uh, you know, even though this was drafted in a hurry, I'm, I'm grateful for that because, again, I think that does make things both safer for my constables and the other law enforcement guys that are working on these kinds of cases, but it also helps, to your point, keep people in that groove of saying, you know, I want to be a good tenant while I'm here. If I'm truly in an emergent situation, it's going to change when the economy gets better again and the quarantines are lifted, I still want to be here in my place. So I think we've all tried to use that to the best advantage we can when it's appropriate. To your point, though, we have seen a number of people where we show up, particularly after a violent incident has occurred on an immediate, and they think that they are qualified to stay uh, even though they, they have no idea that it's not covered under those writs. So again, that 
puts my guys and the other police officers at real risk when we go to do those because people completely misunderstand how that's going to work and think they have some kind of a ability to stay until the end of July in a setting no matter what else happens. So it's again, everything's about education and getting people to understand what the rules are. And what I think is important for practitioners to understand is the difference between the CARES Act and the governor's executive order and what protects what. So the CARES Act will prohibit any eviction if it's um, based on a federally based mortgage or subsidized property. The governor's executive order protects tenants uh, in that certain group that have those, those um, who can allege those conditions uh, and those protections. Um, constable, for your constables going out there in the field, how many of the tenants are prepared with those notices, and, and and if they're not, your constables are giving them the notice? So that's a really great question. In the beginning, almost everyone was unprepared, and, and we were indeed of the belief that was going to be the case. As time has gone on and people have gotten more educated, we find that they are indeed beginning to send notices to their landlord, the plaintiffs, uh, ahead of our arrival, which is great. In some cases, we still extend additional time, particularly if there are going to be medical records need to go with that or something else. The constable can still say, well, you know what, we're going to give you a few more days to complete that uh, because, you know, uh, for a lot of cases, uh, doctor's offices are just now getting to that point where they have staffs in them again who generate records. We're finding that that continues to be a major issue. Uh, one of the bigger problems that we have is, is, again, until people truly understand it, so again, getting someone to download it and read it and understand what their responsibilities are, it's just a blanket thought that somehow it all stopped. And so we're running into that probably less and less each day, but I would still say every day in every one of the 26 precincts in Maricopa County, we hit some tenant somewhere who still doesn't understand what this is about. I, that, that makes sense. I actually had a case the other day that uh, it was a, a, not an eviction case. It was a credit for, um, on it, and it was actually a really old uh, case, I think back from 2014 or something, that the creditor found the, the, the debtor and garnished the wages. And her father kept interrupting the phone conference saying that it was illegal for me to garnish her salary. Um, I think it's, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a balance between, you know, so many people that are already in tight financial situation uh, that have been the hardest hit by this crisis. Now they still find that they still owe money and they still have all their obligations. And I think that sometimes, you know, what's fair or the justice of it gets confused with the law. And, and uh, I mean, we are very grateful for the constables that we know you are all out there um, giving information, educating the tenants, uh, helping. And every one tenant, they educate, they speak to their neighbors, and other people learn. And so I think all of that is really important. And we are very, very grateful for the work that the constables in our county are doing. Well, thank you, Your Honor. But I, but I got to tell you, you guys are the greatest partners ever. I, it's been a I don't know in, in recent history, maybe Gerald would have a better idea. I don't know that we've ever had a joint setting like this where all 26 uh, justices of peace and constables are able to work together in an endeavor like this. This may be uh, unprecedented, but uh, we've certainly been able to pull it off. And it really is a testament even more to our great staffs in each one of the courts 
um, my staff at, at the, the constable's offices. I mean, it, it's everybody pulling together all hands, making it work. And Charlie, who, who goes in every day and looks at all those cases and says, okay, how, how is this impacting us and can we do this better? Um, again, I, uh, I, I'm certainly grateful for it. It makes my job a lot easier. So. Well, thank you. And again, I do want to uh, emphasize that at the bottom of your screen, there is that chat bubble. So this will be the, the last call for questions. We'll give you a few more minutes for that. Charlie, I'm going to step aside and bring Gerald back up, but if you have something more for me, I'll okay. still be here. So. Thank you. Thank and, you, everyone. And one of the things to keep in mind is we are at the beginning of this crisis. We are not at the end. Uh, one of the speakers mentioned that the executive order may be continued past July. Uh, we really don't know what July is going to bring or what August is going to bring uh, and how um, when once we start having to resolve these situations, what that will look like. Uh, we're, we're going to amend the best practice again, if and when we have to. I assume that at some point we will. Uh, the Arizona Supreme Court is also looking at, uh, they have issued a guidance uh, for the general public. They're working on a best practice for judges as well. Uh, so um, there's still a lot that is coming our way and, and we all have to stay on top of it uh, for ourselves, for the people of Arizona. If there's no questions, I'd like to touch quickly upon the, uh, the remote appearances in court and the recent administrative order by the Supreme Court. So the new administrative order, um, I think some people interpreted it to mean that court is going to throw their doors open and we're back in business. Uh, I don't think that is what the administrative order says at all. I think it says that we are to continue with remote hearings, uh, telephonic or by video, as much as possible. The only cases that should be done in the court are the ones that cannot be done remotely. So all of the courts uh, were experimenting uh, with new forms of technology. We have been up until now doing just telephonic hearings, which does put a strain on the judges uh, because certain hearings are very difficult uh, when you need to evaluate uh, maybe credibility or when you want to be, you, you, you can't uh, know if someone's understanding what you're explaining when you can't see them. And so I'm hopeful that we will be moving into this format that we are doing now, which is more of a video format. But again, the technology, not, not all litigants have that technology. Uh, not everybody has a reliable cell phone service. Not everybody has unlimited minutes. Um, and so there are those challenges also that we need to take well, and the judges can address the irony is as we move to uh, the virtual courtroom, we actually have more participation uh, from our, our tenants. That is certainly true in my case. Um, I, it, it, part of it is just the location of our, of our courthouse. Um, the North Valley Justice Court Precinct is part of Glendale, part of Phoenix. It goes up Interstate 17 and has Anthem and Desert Hills. The court is located in Surprise. There's no mass transit that comes to our building, um, even during spring training, which is about a mile away. We're about a mile from the 
uh, Texas Rangers and the Kansas City Royal Spring Training Facility. There's no mass transit that comes here. And it's uh, if you're a tenant and you're being evicted for non-payment of rent, um, and your choice is between taking a day off work and coming all the way out to surprise just to hear that you're going to be evicted, or staying at work and at least getting paid for that day, it's it's not a bad decision to, to stay at work. It, it, um, a lot of people are in jobs that you don't get paid if you don't go to work. So I, I understand that. But it's still frustrating when we have residential eviction calendars, when we have a 90% default rate from tenants. When we started sending out notices with the summonses saying that you could appear by phone, that flipped to about a 90% or an 80% appearance rate. So now every, almost every tenant is appearing, which is, is, um, you, you have all the same problems that you have with any other conference call. You have people interrupt you. You have people from other cases start to lecture you why you're being unfair or dogs barking in the background or all of those types of things. But at least everyone is coming. And it gives you an opportunity to explain things um, because otherwise tenants may be under the misperception that they don't have to show up because of what they saw on TV or what they saw on the Internet. And their, their first um, realization that they're facing an eviction action for real is when the constable knocks on the door. And uh, at least from my perspective, an eviction action shouldn't be a surprise. The... You, you, you should know that that is coming. All right, we have no other questions. Uh, no. We have no other questions. So, Lori, uh, do you want to wrap us up? Thank you all for this very informative discussion. I, I learned a lot. Um, that's not saying much. Again, for the people that telephoned in. I don't have your name, so please email me who you are so I can mark you as attended. Thank you all so much for presenting. I truly appreciate it. Everybody have a fabulous holiday weekend. Thank you all again.